Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreau. I'm Sally Gentry. And we are so happy that you choose to tune in. Tell your friends about it, okay? This is a power-packed episode, really a one-stop shop. We are celebrating National Eye Donor Month, and you don't want to miss a thing. Absolutely, Lori. We're going to be talking to a surgeon. He's performed almost 50 thousand corrective procedures. That's absolutely amazing. Today we're going to talk with a donor mother whose son not only saved lives but also gave the gift of sight to two people. Yeah, now she's getting involved helping us make life happen. We love those stories. We'll also honor a hero as we do on every podcast. We'll also have a recipient, a cornea recipient, talk to us about what life is like post-transplant. So I'm excited about learning so much today here. Like I said, a one-stop shop Here's what you can do if you want to join with us. Spread the word about the podcast. Spread the word about us. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever your favorite podcast app might be. We are really easy to find. I love that. And like us. Yeah. And you can share it. Just one click. Yeah. You can do it. You can make something happen today. And listen, maybe you're on social media a lot for work or for play, but we're on Facebook, Donate Life Louisiana. So a lot of what's happening in the state you'll see there. Also, Twitter and Instagram, we're at Donate Life LA. And don't forget, you can call us 504-648-3477. Be a part of this podcast. We want it to be interactive. We want to learn from you. We want to share your stories. So your audio could be used here on the podcast. A whole podcast celebrating National Eye Donor Month. So you are going to learn some stuff today. So sit down, buckle up. Here we go. As we talked about at the top of the Gifted Life podcast, we are celebrating National Eye Donor Month. And to help us do that, we've invited Jason Woody onto the podcast, CEO of Lions Eye Institute for Transplant and Research out of Florida. He's also the Donate Life America chair. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time. We know that you're a busy guy, uh, but I first wanted to start. Looks like you've been in the donation world for 25 years. So tell us how things have changed for you and, and how we're continuing to move forward and make life happen. Well, actually, I got started. I was actually a surgical nurse, and I was working at uh, one of the local hospitals here at Tampa General. And I had the opportunity during one of my rotations is actually to see a kidney transplant. And to me, that was probably one of the most amazing procedures out of anything I've seen before in my life. I actually had the opportunity to deliver probably half a dozen babies. And, you know, just the transplant side was so amazing to me that I really felt that was kind of my calling and where I would like to go. I applied at the iBank, started in a recovery position, and then kind of worked my way up as things lined up in the organization. In November, I've been here 27 years. So it's been an amazing uh, career, and I think since the time here, we've done in the neighborhood of about 60,000 transplants. The science has really been amazing where patients would be, you know, a couple years, two, three years out, still their vision wouldn't be exactly where they want it to be, where some of the new surgical procedures are giving them, you know, 20, 20, 20, 40, 20, 60 sites, you know, a couple days after surgery. 
So it's been a really amazing transformation. So all these years later now, you are at the Lions Eye Institute for Transplant and Research, and it's the first and only combined eye bank and ocular research center in the world, which is amazing. So what does that mean for the common person out there? I have to really give a lot of thanks to my board of directors. We had the vision that most people think about transplant as a corneal transplant. It's an amazing procedure. But as many people listening to this podcast would understand that, you know, there are so many other issues with the eye that cannot be cured by transplant alone. So our board had the vision to look at research as well. So to focus on eye diseases, because at that point, there's about 45 to 50,000 corneal transplants done in the United States. But there's millions of people in the United States that have an eye disease. Probably people that are on this call right now know someone that's affected by an eye disease, Mm -hmm. possibly glaucoma, obviously macular degeneration, or a number of others. So our board had that vision to not just focus on transplant, but the research to help millions of people worldwide. And you talk about the research, and glaucoma is one of those eye disorders, especially in the South and Southeast, uh, that we see quite often because of the, the higher incidence of diabetes in the region. So with the research, is it specifically vision-type research? Well, right now, it's mostly just focused on vision. Many of these, as far as eye diseases, cannot be fully replicated in an animal model. And so people, you hear about, you know, animal testing and things like that, and they say, well, you know, why not? Well, unfortunately, the animals don't live long enough. There's Mm -hmm. very few animals that have a lifespan of a human. So, for instance, you know, if they were to do any kind of a small, even say, mice or rat study, they don't live that long. So they would give a very short-term picture of glaucoma. But say, for instance, on a personal level, my grandmother was an eye donor to our program. She passed away at 93. Her glaucoma she had for 20 years would look completely different than the animal model that was just instantaneous glaucoma. And so that's why that tissue is so valuable. They were able to obtain her medications, all the things that she had gone through, and then use that information to see how that worked or didn't work over the period that she was diagnosed. So that's what we're able to provide researchers, real clinical data of how that disease is and the medications impacted their vision. That is amazing work that you guys do there, Jason. And, you know, you talked about all the people who give sight through cornea donation, you know, especially those uh, there in the Florida. And, of course, you guys are now servicing the North Louisiana area as well. What differentiates from an eye research donor and an eye transplant donor? What type of screening differentiates those two? Well, that's a great question. Really, anyone can be an eye donor. Anyone really has that ability to do that because we don't have a true matching process. And so usually what we'll do is the cornea can be used for transplant and the remaining part of the eye can be used for research. For those cases that are older, Sometimes a patient is, you know, you know, 75, 80, 90 years old, and the family has a wish to be a donor. At that time, that tissue primarily is used for research. And, so there's a, and of course, based upon the eye disease, if, you know, we do a medical screening process, and during any time that we're talking to the family or reviewing the medical chart, we see uh, an eye disease present. We know that that tissue is in, invaluable for research. Jason, Sally here. I was wondering, my role with LOPA is following up with donor families. So I'm wondering, do you all provide a type of follow-up with the donor families or do you facilitate any sort of support for them? We do. We contact them usually within 30 days after donation. Uh Uh, If they have any questions, anything like that, we also have a donor pen we provide to them 
as well. We follow up one year later, again, to see if there's questions. And at that time, we ask them whether they want to volunteer, would they like a speaking engagement. Uh, sometimes, you know, that, that immediate time after that they've lost their loved one, they're not ready to engage that way, but maybe they would like to be a volunteer at our organization to find out more about what we do and things of that nature. And we keep that relationship going as long as they would like to continue with us. Some do ask us to tell them a little bit about their recipient uh -huh. uh, as the Fudge family that will be joining you on the call a little bit later um, has done. And we're able to give them that information as well uh, as far as if they had requested it. Awesome. Jason, I also wanted to just follow up with you. We're celebrating National Eye Donor Month initiatives that you guys have in play as a way to increase that donor registry. And then where do we want folks to go to help increase that registry? A couple of years ago, a program came out. What was difficult is many states had their own registry, but there wasn't this national portal to go to. Now, as you know, as a combination of both, there's a website through Donate Life America. It's registerme.org. And you actually can go right to that website. And as far as register right there, and that would put you in the national registry, which gives all the states that have registries access to that information. Now, for those of us that uh, can't live without our uh, cell phones, Apple <laughs> right. has now come up with an app that I mean, plenty of us that are attached to our, or I would say hip, but it's really attached to our ear. That's right. You know, now are our fingertips. And Apple, you have OS 10, the newest feature that came out. You go into the medical health side there, click, and it takes just, honestly, less than five minutes. And if you register there, which is easier, that will actually load you right into the registerme.org app as well. You can share your decision right there. I think it's via Twitter, via Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, all of those different uh, online sharing programs. You can actually share and say that you made that decision. So everyone that's in your friends, uh, you can put it out on your Facebook wall. It comes up that you made that decision. To encourage your other friends, at least, if, if not to act, at least to think about it. Yeah, we appreciate that, Jason. We appreciate you being a partner. I'm sure we'll see a lot in the month of March and that we will help with that education side as well and hopefully increase that donor registry to make life happen. Jason Woody with the Lions Eye Institute for Transplant and Research today on the podcast. In this segment of The Gifted Life, we are talking to Dr. Lewis Groden. He's the medical director for the Lions Eye Institute for Transplant and Research. We appreciate you taking the time. We know that you are very busy. I have a stat here in front of me, doctor, and it says you have performed over 49,000 laser vision correction procedures. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, someone actually keeps track of that. I think it's now <laughs> somewhere above <laughs> 60,000, oh, wow. but I don't really personally keep track of it. My B goodness. Busy man. I know. Well, and so I'm just sitting here thinking, my goodness, the site restored. Yeah. That's amazing because we have a, a donor family that we work with and it's the sweetest older little mom. And she said, if the recipient can see life the way my baby saw life, it's beautiful. And you give that gift. So tell us how you got into this line of work and were able to help that many folks. Well, when I was a resident many years ago, back in the 1980s, I had mentors who were corneal surgeons, and I just found it fascinating. And even though corneal transplant surgery has certainly advanced over the years, even back then, it was an amazing procedure that gave almost immediate improvement in vision. And it was gratifying. And honestly, it's fun surgery. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it's rewarding both for me as a surgeon and for the patient. Well, and bless you for going through all those years of training to be able to give this 
gift, but we know that there's a lot to it. Basically, 60,000 lives that you've touched, you know, those people can see when, you know, previously they could not. What type of disorders do you guys typically treat with corneal transplants? Corneal transplants involve restoring clarity to the cornea. The cornea is the front part of the eye. It's, in effect, the window to the eye. So when you look at someone's eye, when you look at your own eye, and you see the colored part of the eye, you're looking through the clear cornea. And there are many conditions that result in the cornea losing clarity or becoming distorted in shape. Some of the conditions begin at birth. There are babies who are born with clouded corneas. Corneal transplant surgery is the only way for a child like that to have the ability to see. As people get older, some people develop a distortion in the shape of the cornea, something called keratoconus. Kerato is Greek for cornea. <laughs> and the cornea is shaped like a cone instead of a nice round surface. Those people, if they cannot see well with contact lenses and they won't see well with glasses, require a corneal transplant to restore more normal shape to the eye and then be able to see well. Other people develop corneal scars. They lose clarity due to scarring from trauma or from infection. That infection may be due to a virus or it may be due to bacteria, perhaps associated with contact lens wear. If the scarring is significant enough to block vision, a corneal transplant can restore clarity. And finally, the cornea can become swollen. That is inherent in some people. They're just born with that destiny, if you will. Others, trauma perhaps related to other eye surgery, such as cataract surgery, results in swelling of the cornea, loss of clarity to that window, and a corneal transplant can restore a clear view of the world. You talked about you know, such a wide range of disorders here. What's the youngest patient that you've ever uh, performed corneal transplant surgery on? The youngest child I've ever performed surgery on was one day old and was actually a wow. premature baby, so technically wow. before birth now, yeah. about one day old. Right. And it was a child born with both corneas, very cloudy, and the sooner that child has surgery, the better the chances of having useful vision later in life. Fortunately, that is rare. <laughs> what is the youngest donor that you guys accept to be a corneal donor? There really isn't an age restriction on donation, either on the young side or the old side. <laughs> right. uh, we can transplant tissue from infants, and if the cornea is healthy, there's really not an upper limit of age as well. I'm the chief clinical officer for LOPA, so I oversee the organ side. From a screening standpoint, things are so much more restricted for us, especially comparatively speaking to you guys. One example being cancer. Anyone with a malignant cancer is automatically ruled out for organ donation. And yours is a much wider net. Can you tell us, one, why that is? And two, what the outer limits of what you guys would accept uh, in donation? Of course. All donors are screened. And 
the iBank industry is regulated, just like the organ right. procurement industry groups are regulated by the iBank Association of America guidelines, the FDA, and other groups. And that's to ensure safety of donation. The last thing we want to do is transplant a disease from a donor to a recipient or to transplant a cornea that's unlikely to be successful. (laughs) So all donors, for example, are screened for hepatitis. Mm -hmm. Uh, All donors are screened for HIV AIDS. Not that HIV can be transplanted from a cornea, but we don't want to take that risk. Right. You mentioned cancer in your questions. Cancer systemically is not a contraindication to being a donor. And those corneas can do very well. Diabetes, a very common illness in donors, those corneas are able to be used. Also, unlike organ donation, we do not have to tissue type. We don't have to match the cornea to the recipient. And that's because the cornea is what's referred to as immunologically privileged. In development, it's isolated from the rest of the body, and therefore, the body doesn't react to a cornea the same way as it would react to a kidney, a liver, a heart, a lung, or other organs or tissues being transplanted. That makes corneal donation much easier than organ donation. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about the surgery and then, of course, the recovery process? Yes. First, the surgery is scheduled today. In other words, the recipient doesn't have to wait to get a phone call from the surgeon or from the eye bank that a cornea is available. Corneal donation and eye banking have progressed to the point where it's now possible for us as an eye bank to provide surgeons and therefore the patients with tissue, with a cornea on a scheduled basis. So the patient is scheduled for surgery much the way a cataract operation would be scheduled. The surgery is almost always outpatient and more often than not done under local anesthesia. In other words, the patient is awake, the eyes numb, and the procedure itself can take anywhere from 15 minutes to a little under an hour, depending on the complexity of the surgery and any other surgeries done with it. For example, corneal transplants may be combined with cataract surgery if the patient has a pre-existing cataract. So the procedure itself is pretty easy for the patient. Yeah. And my job as a surgeon is to make it easy for the patient. Yeah. Uh, it's, so it doesn't take long. It doesn't hurt. It is outpatient. The patient goes home with a patch on the eye, and that is removed the following day. Visual recovery, depending on the nature of the corneal transplant and the condition for which it's done, vision is improved almost immediately. This is amazing. And I work with volunteers out in the community and we work to educate the public and we work to increase the donor registry and to put facts out. So I'm learning from you. This is stuff I can take back out into the community. But those corneal recipients say it's life-saving. It's life-changing. I can see the confidence. I can see the change in them. And it's amazing. So we appreciate you, Dr. Lewis, for taking the time to do this and then for dedicating your life 
to Giving Sight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for joining us here on the Gifted Life Podcast. In our family support segment today, we have a special guest. Her name is Dawn Futch, and she is the mother of a hero. Hero Michael Jean Futch, 19-year-old donor, and was killed in a car accident seven years ago. Sally, you had the opportunity to, to visit a little bit with Dawn. I did, and thank you so much for being with us, Dawn. And we really look forward to hearing what all you have been doing over the past several years and how Michael Jean was able to enhance multiple lives through tissue donation, saving five lives through organ donation. And I believe you said that he also helped two people with restoring sight in South Africa. Yes, that is correct. Tell us a little bit more about you and what led up to your deciding to work with Trans Life and to be able to share Michael Jean's story. Early on in 2010, one of our son's friends had gone away to college, and when Ryan was there, he was there on a basketball scholarship, and the boys were being teenage boys, and they were horsing around, and there was a ravine, and they were jumping off of a bridge into the water. Well, Ryan decided to go head first, and when he did, the water was shallow, and he broke his neck. That left him paralyzed from the neck down, and from that point on, his family had to take care of him doing everything. So upon his return from Georgia back to Florida, when Michael Jean had seen the condition that Ryan was in, Michael had said, you know, Mom, do me a favor. If anything ever happened to me, don't let me live like that because it's no quality of life. Now that conversation was about six months prior to our son um, having a tragic car accident, which took his life. So. Um, November 20th, 2010, we have a local bakery, and it's about maybe 8 to 10 miles from our home, and Michael had stopped in at the shop, and he was talking to his dad, said that he was headed home, and it was about roughly about 8.15 in the evening. It had been slightly raining, and as Michael proceeded to go home, two of his friends were following in another vehicle, and... They had only left the shop about five minutes, and we got a phone call from one of Michael's friends saying that there had been a car accident. So at that point in time, my husband thought that it was Michael's friend that was in the accident, and then he screamed in the phone, and he said, no, Mr. Mike, it's Michael, and it's bad. So at that point, we just stopped everything we were doing, and we drove over to the hospital. At this time, it was about 9.30. And, um, you know, we waited, and during that time, I just kept praying. Mm -hmm. So about 3.30 in the morning, they finally came in, and they told Mike and I that, you know, Michael was in ICU, that we could go in and see him, but only he and I could. And so our daughter and my sister waited in the other room, and uh, Michael's friends were there with them, and we walked into the room, and upon walking in, I put my hand on Michael's chest, and when I did, I could feel that there was no life there. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I turned to the nurse that was there, and I didn't know that he actually was a nurse not only for the hospital but for trans life. And so I just said, please just 
tell me, you know, what his prognosis is. I said, but I want you to be honest with me. Don't sugarcoat it. Mm-hmm. And he said that Michael had brain damage, that they had um, put him into, you know, a bunch of tests and that there was very little brain activity. I told Darren, you know, I said, our son is an organ donor. I said, so if Michael has no brain function, then I will sign, you know, the release for him to be a donor. Mm-hmm. And then the next morning um, when the doctor came in and they did the test, that Michael had zero brain function. When he hit the quarter panel of the car, he had cracked where the, the brain stem meets the back of the neck mm-hmm. and he brain hemorrhaged. And so you you went ahead and made that decision that you knew that this is what he would want and this is what you all would want as a family to help others. And with five recipients, you have met all five of them? Yes. Michael's double lung transplant recipient was living in Raleigh, North Carolina. He actually flew into Florida and we had the opportunity to meet him. Uh-huh. Um, Michael's liver recipient lives in Orlando. One kidney recipient lives in Orlando. His pancreas recipient lives in Omaha, Nebraska. And then his other kidney recipient lives in Minnesota. Wonderful for you and your family. I'm sure that must have brought you some solace in all of this. Well, it, it brought things full circle because it, it allowed us to see the gift that, you know, Michael was able to give in restoring life for, you know, those who really needed it. Um, his liver recipient, who we are probably the closest with his family, mm-hmm. um, hours prior to Michael having his accident, his wife was told that he had less than 3% chance of making it through the night. Oh, my. And he actually ended up being a 99.9% match. Oh, for wow. Wow. Yeah. And so now you take all of this information, your extended family, and we move forward and we try to make life happen in some way, shape, or form. And I know that one of the things that you do is participate in a 5K. And what I loved is that I think I heard you say you run with a transplant surgeon. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Angel's transplant surgeon is from Florida Hospital, and he comes out and he runs it every year with us. <sighs> That's amazing. So tell us some of the other things that you guys do to help increase that donor registry using Michael Jean's story? Well, Michael's birthday was Christmas Eve. He passed away one month prior to his birthday. So as a family, my daughter said that if Michael wasn't going to be there to open his gifts, that she didn't want her stuff either, that she wanted everything to be donated. So with that, we started the Michael Jean Kids Basketball Foundation. And basically, we help individuals that are you know, not as fortunate as others to be able to play the sport that our son loves so much by, you know, paying for the sponsorship for, you know, kids to be able to play at a lesser cost. Or if they can't afford it at all, then we would, you know, supply the means for them to be able to play. Oh my goodness. We also give back at Christmas time. We put angel trees all up over Brevard County. We collect gifts for families and children in need, and then we deliver them before Christmas Eve. Oh, wonderful. Uh, Thanksgiving, we do, um, we team up with Space Coast Basket Brigade, and last year we were able to supply over 1,800 families with Thanksgiving meals. And then I also do a lot of um, outreach. I go into the hospitals and I speak 
for the ICU units, um, for the emergency staff. I speak at the colleges for nurses that are getting ready to um, graduate from nursing school. I do a lot of health care fairs. My husband does a lot of health care fairs. So any opportunity that we're given to speak about the importance of organ donation, um, we try to do that. Wow. Yes. I love all of this. I hear the, the strength in your voice. Um, and I know that it's been a number of years that you guys have been living this. And we appreciate you just kind of being examples where you are. MichaelGene.org, if you want to see this handsome face and learn a little bit more about him and, and what the Futches do. And Dawn, I want to ask you to, to hang on with us. We want Dawn to join us in our hero segment because Michael Jean Futch will be our hero for this Gifted Life podcast episode. Stay tuned. At this point on the Gifted Life podcast, we are going to honor a hero, and we are very pleased that this hero's mom is going to share his story. So we're going to welcome back Dawn Futch. Yes, Laurie, as you alluded to earlier, in this segment, we will honor Michael Jean Futch. Thank you guys for having me today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my son. Michael Jean's birthday was Christmas Eve. He was a very active young man. He and his sister both started Taekwondo and basketball at the age of three and four, and it stayed with them all through growing up. At the age of 19, just shy of Michael's 20th birthday, he was involved in a car accident which took his life. About six months prior to Michael's accident, Michael had told us as a family that if anything should ever happen to him, that he would not want to live his life where there was no quality of life. So upon finding out that Michael was brain dead, we went ahead and decided to allow him to be an organ donor. You really never know what being an organ donor means until you're thrown into the midst of it. And with Michael's gift, he was able to save five lives through double lung transplant. He also, both kidneys, pancreas, and liver transplant. He was able to save multiple lives and enhancement with tissue and Michael's corneas um, were able to give the gift of sight to two people. We have a large map in our garage. We called it the Futch Family Vacation Map because we did everything together with our kids. We traveled with them. We spent every holiday together. We were the family that we did it all together. And so on this map, we told our kids that they could each pick a place that they would like to go and visit. So our daughter wanted to go to Australia, and Michael Jean always said he wanted to go to Africa. I was in pursuit of trying to find out where Michael's eyes went. And through the help of the Lion's Eye Institute, we were able to find out that both of Michael's eyes went to two separate recipients, and both of Michael's eyes ended up going to South Africa. Wow. So if you think about the, the vast amount of space there is in this world and any place and every place where his eyes could have went, the one place that they went was the one place on the map that Michael wanted to see. I think we all took a moment. That is an incredible story. If you want to learn more about Michael Jean, you want to see his picture, learn more about this family, michaeljean.org. And now we pause and say thank you to Michael Jean for the gift of life. 
We have reached our question and answer segment here on The Gifted Life. Does a cornea transplant make a noticeable difference in a person's vision? Well, Laurie, I know I'm an expert in most aspects of the <laughs> transplant field. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, we might have to ask his wife. Well, we may have to. We're not sure where you're going. I tell you in nothing. <laughs> but uh, I'm certainly not an expert in the corneal transplant field. So this time we have an actual corneal recipient on the line with us, Samantha Shoemaker. Hey, Sam. Is it Samantha or Sam? It's, yeah, that's fine. Either way. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, we are so thrilled that you have taken the time to join us. So an expert on Absolutely. this, right? We're going to get the real down low information. So the question posed, does a cornea transplant make a noticeable difference in a person's vision? What say you, Samantha? Oh, absolutely. 100% absolutely. It changes your life for so many reasons. It basically opens up your world. For me, I went from, for example, not being able to see blades of grass or individual leaves on trees to being able to see all of that. I had my transplants when I was younger. So now that I'm older, I've had a baby and being able to see her and see her smile and see her growing. It's so life-changing. It's a gift. At what age did you first lose sight? And then when were you able to get your transplant? I was born with very low vision. I was born with what they call Peter's anomaly, which is basically an opacity on the cornea. And I received my transplant when I was nine in one eye and when I was 10 in the other eye. So you went essentially from not being able to see almost anything to where are you now? Basically, I'm, I don't know the exact numbers okay. like on the eye chart, but... You can see your baby's face. I can Exactly. I can see her face. I can see her smile. I can see her play. Before my transplants, my mom had another baby. My aunts had babies. And I couldn't see the sonogram. It just looked like mm -hmm. a, a black blob. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, because I always wanted to be a mom. I always wanted to have a baby. And I remember thinking, well, I'm never going to be able to see my own baby's sonogram. And I was able to see hers. I was able to see her face and her arms and watch her grow oh, wow. because of the transplant. Wow. Do we hear little Amelia in the background? I think I do. Oh, yeah. That's her little... <laughs> mm -hmm. Little 10 months old. So when we, we talk to folks, I work with volunteers out in the community. And so the folks that have had cornea transplants say it's life-saving, it's life-changing, and it sounds like the same for you. Yes, it opens up your life. You can live without sight, absolutely, and people do it every day, and people have a great quality of life without sight. My mom, when I was little, before my transplants, my mom never let me say, I can't because I can't see. There was always Good a way around it, no matter what it was. When you would come into our house when I was younger, there would be Sharpie marks on everything, the dishwasher, the washing machine, because normality was very important. Just because I couldn't see, there was no reason that I should be held back. So what were the Sharpie marks for? Like, to turn the dishwasher on, turn it here. To oh. cold, cold on the washing machine yeah. was the blue line. Red on the washing machine oh. was the red line. That's a good mama. Um, that was 
good thinking. Yeah, that's right. Speaking of colors, one of the other questions that we get often is that uh, does cornea transplant change the color of your eyes? So I'll leave that to you to answer. No, it does not change the color of your eye. Your eye color is your iris, and a cornea transplant is the outer layer. The cornea is the outer layer of your eye, which kind of looks like a contact, and that layer is clear. So no, whatever color your eye is, your eyes will remain that same color. Well, Samantha, we have enjoyed you, and we enjoyed hearing a little bit about 10-month-old Amelia back there. So thanks for being our expert on this question. You can also give us a call if you have a question, 504-648-3477. We may play your audio on this podcast or info at lopa.org. Contact us today. This episode of the Gifted Life podcast has come to a closed power pack as we celebrate National Eye Donor Month, guys. Do have to thank a lot of people because we learn so much from our partners. Jason Woody, the CEO of Lions Eye Institute for Transplant and Research and the Donate Life America chair joined us. Such good information coming out all moving forward, making life happen. Yeah, and we want to thank Lions Eye Institute Medical Director, Dr. Lewis Groden, for sharing some of his expertise about who can be a donor and a recipient, as well as just what the surgery and recovery entails. And we also thank Dawn Futch for sharing her story about her son, Michael Jean, and what this has meant to her. Yeah, just a go-getter. We love to hear that. And then Samantha Shoemaker, I told her I would call her Sammy Sam. Uh-huh. Just so cute. Loved her story, our cornea recipient, really our expert today on what it's like to have received that gift of sight. So powerful. But we do want to leave you with the words of Dawn, our donor mom. She said that her son, a hero, Michael Jean, his eyes ended up going to the place he really wanted to see. Be inspired and then go out and do something that you don't normally do to help us make life happen. This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreau, and Sally Gentry. Our producers are Kirsten Hines and Shalon Carraway. We are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Metairie, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. <laughs>